Drink This Beer is brought to you by The Beer Guys. BeerGuysRadio.com is where you need to go to get the scoop on what's going on in craft beer. That's BeerGuysRadio.com. And if you like the show, consider becoming one of our sponsors. Head to Patreon.com slash BeerGuys. That's Patreon.com slash BeerGuys. Welcome to Drink This Beer, a show dedicated to craft beer and the people who make it. Each episode, we'll get the stories behind the brews you love. Now, here are your hosts, Tim Dennis and Aaron Williams. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? And thanks for tuning in to Drink This Beer. This is our show where it brings you the best brewers from all around the country and around the world. Tim just finished off a beer, just chugged it. That's why I was laughing. I'm Aaron Williams. That's it. And I'm Tim Dennis, and I did have to chug a beer because uh, I had some of my glass, but I got to get some beer here from our guest. That's absolutely right. So we are talking to Magnolia Brewing out of San Francisco, California this week. Absolutely. Dave McLean is the founder and brewmaster. Uh, he's uh, been in the business for quite a while, uh, over 20 years or so. And uh, my first question is, and I think I've read some background about you, so I think I know the answer to this. But we're based in the South. We're here in Atlanta. And, of course, magnolias are ubiquitous here. Why did you call your brewery Magnolia in San Francisco? Well, I'm glad you asked. There are actually two reasons. Okay. One more obvious than the other. Some know about me and the brand, but, uh, you know, there's the, there is a Grateful Dead connection to the song Sugar Magnolia. That's what I thought. Uh, okay. So you you were right if you were guessing that. Um, but on top of that, uh, you know, no, knowing that I wanted to kind of work some kind of dead reference into my brewery name, um, it could have been any number of things with a songbook of over 400 songs. It didn't have to be necessarily that one. Uh, but the hook that made it, made that the obvious choice was there was a, uh, there's a legendary San Francisco personality who, owned and operated a little cafe in the space that the original Magnolia location is in, in Hate Street. Um, and her name and her business's name were Magnolia Thunderpussy. Okay. Okay. All right. Is that uh, her given name? Is that the birth I, name there? I so? don't think that's the okay, birth right. But um, she's a, a, a character out of San Francisco's illustrious mid-20th century past, and she... Um, she was, I think she was a dancer in North Beach, uh, and then she, that was her stage name, and she came over to The Hate after she got out of that business and opened, but she kept the name, and she opened a place in our spot, and she called it Magnolia Thunder Pussies. And this would be late 60s, um, right after the summer love, so I think like 68 is when it sounds like she got there into our spot. Well, that, that she was would there make, for a couple of years, and yeah. yeah. That would make sense then, actually. The double so. tie-in, that just had to happen, Exactly. Right? So, yeah. It needed to be named that, yeah. That's yeah. right. So, That's Dave, what is, uh, what's your craft beer story? How'd you get involved in the world of beer, and, and what brought you to open your own brewery? Uh, I think my story is similar to a lot of people's, but, you know, everybody's got a little bit of a different twist on it. But, I mean, I just, it started out with an obsession with drinking good beer, um, especially in the late 80s and early 90s when I was getting into it. It just seemed like there was a... You know, this was a breath of fresh air and a you know otherwise sea of mediocre, mass-produced, boring beer that I kind of grew up drinking. And then all of a sudden, I realized there was actually beer with flavor. And um, and then not only that, but beer with great local stories. And I was kind of as I was as much drawn to the 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 uh, kind of the indie alternative vibe that beer seemed to have. Craft beer, you know, it wasn't even called craft beer then, but. Um, you know, the, the new startup breweries that were popping up in the late 80s and early 90s, they were definitely under the radar and, and, and represented kind of the antithesis of, of kind of mass-produced everything. And so that was as attractive as the, the awesome flavors that I was experiencing. There were microbrews um, in those days, not craft beer, right, just microbrews. Microbrews, exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then of um, course, back in the day, that was, uh, you know, places like Anchor's Team for you guys or, uh, or Sierra Nevada. Uh, a couple of the ones, of course, are pioneers in the craft beer movement now and uh, certainly yeah. something you, you could start off with, yeah. Yeah, and I was living in Boston, so I, I did start to find some of the early West Coast beers showing up on the shelves and taps back there, but I was also discovering, like, Harpoon, and there was a oh, yeah. brewery out of Vermont at the time called Catamount. Um, I remember Geary Catamount. And Maine were still around back then. <laughs> and Geary, absolutely, yeah. I, I yeah. went to school in upstate New York, and my family's off in New England. I'm like, I remember, I remember those now, absolutely. Yeah, so those were the those were probably the first craft beers or microbrew beers that I felt I found just because they were close to me. Um, but but sure enough, the, the West Coast beers were starting to make their way east even back then. So were you gone from Boston before that little beer company opened up there? Um, they hadn't built their uh, Jamaica Plain brewery and like kind of tasting room and, and you know with the whole tour experience that that wasn't there when I was there. Um, they were around as a brand, um, but I think they were still brewing a lot of their beer elsewhere. And then I think right after I left, that must have been around the same time I left that they opened the. The place in Jamaica Plain, which is a, a sort of a suburb of, or outer neighborhood of Boston. So you moved from Jamaica Plain or from from Boston to uh, San Francisco. Quite a difference uh, moving out to the West Coast. Uh, what attracted you to this to the to the area? And uh, again, what uh, prompted you to start a start a brew pub, gastropub in the area? Uh, I came out here specifically um, for a number of reasons. Post college, what are you going to do with your life? Where to go next? Kind of you know the True. classic yeah. classic uh, you know thing everybody faces um, but I came here specifically driven a lot by the access to more grateful dead shows that'll do it <laughs> everybody has their reasons that's man. right I like Absolutely. it I like that's it right. it was uh, you know somewhat of a you know borderline religious journey I guess definitely that's awesome and um, but you know and I but but like I I think I probably mentioned in, a, in you know like the emails leading up to this but uh, the two things beer and the dead kind of found themselves intertwined for me because there's a lot, you know, like a lot of kind of parking lot tailgating type scene going on in the dead scene back then too. And, and, uh, people were selling and drinking beer and, you know, it just didn't make sense. It wouldn't have made sense for their, you know, for the dominant beer in that culture to be mass produced because everything about that scene was kind of alternative. That's true. Yeah. So, you know, there was, I think pretty sure that I had my first Sierra Pale Ale on the parking lot of a dead show. I'm pretty sure I had my first Red Tail Ale on the parking lot of a dead show. Like I think a lot of my first of like enduring craft beer brands that, that are still around today, like happened in parking lots in the, in the Northeast and Midwest so chasing the dead around and drink, finding those beers there. And so to me, I kind of, I, I discovered both simultaneously and wove them together in my mind as like two things that, that I was excited about and, and one brought me to California and the other one became the thing that I decided to do with my life once I got here. Yeah, and uh, you've been doing it for about 20 years uh, and you've been 20 years in the business, but uh, of course, between then and now, nothing much has changed except for the touch of gray in your beard, right? Yeah, yeah, it's more than a touch now. Okay, good. True. More than a touch um, of gray. I was very I was very happy with that uh, with that question, by the way. That made me <laughs> it's like, a, sorry. It's, it's, yeah, well, that's, that's the big difference that I see every day. Yeah. Definitely. I know I know the feeling, yes. <laughs> you know, we have a Grateful Dead uh inspired brewery here in Georgia. So it's a, you you familiar with Terrapin Brewery? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, so yeah. We had That's Spike on the only deadhead brewer out there, you know. I mean there's, there's, oh, there's sure. plenty of them, yeah, yeah I'm sure. Absolutely. That kind of goes to the culture, the whole independent uh, spirit and all that kind of stuff and beards kind of as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
Definitely. Now, uh, over 20 years, though, you've seen uh, a lot of changes there. And, uh, you know, just seeing what you've accomplished in, in San Francisco uh, brewing industry, you've been very involved in it. Uh, one of the original founders of the San Francisco Brewers Guild back in 2004 and San Francisco Beer Week in 2009. So uh, you've, I'm imagining you've seen a lot change there, maybe not with you, or, but with San Francisco and craft beer in general. Yeah, and I think it, you know, probably mirrors, you know, a lot of the what's gone on in the rest of the country. Everything maybe maybe different timelines in different regions, but you know, I think the the idea seems similar across the across the country. Which is, at one time, it was a pretty, you know, off the beaten path kind of thing that you know it was a very very small group of you know almost cultish followers of of, of craft beer or microbrew beer, whatever you want to call it, and. And then it's just, you know, the biggest thing that's happened is it's just exploded. And, you know, 20 years ago in San Francisco, there were six of us, I guess seven. There was Anchor and then the rest of us. We kind of always kind of kept Anchor elevated above the rest. You know, we all looked up to Anchor as the beginning of it all. So there was Anchor, and then I think there were like six kind of smaller little brew pubs and indie breweries that started up, you know, in the 90s. Um, Well, I think, you know, one in the late 80s. It's not around anymore. But so it was a pretty small group of us. And, you know, San Francisco is not a huge city. It's eight between eight and nine hundred thousand people but only six breweries seems kind of quaint now by today's standards sure. I think today there are 33 maybe bordering on soon to be 34 breweries in san francisco yeah, and then so of course you've got oakland thing. and berkeley and all those places around it too that have uh, plenty of beer there too so yeah if you lump in the rest of the bay area you're talking about a couple hundred breweries and you know i think the one stat that sticks out as i reflect on 20 years you know statewide is when we opened in 1997 there were somewhere around 700 craft breweries in the country and now there are over 700 creeping up on 800 in california alone you see that makes us envious we're based out of georgia and what is it 54 we've got like 45 yeah. actual breweries here right now but we're working on no, it dave bad, we're working <laughs> on it so that's a, really that's still a good number by you know if you, if you look at the long arc of the, the beer movement sure you know, just having that many in, in a state is great you know that's, yeah and we've that's got how far it's come We've got several in planning now, and that so it's we continue to see growth here, and that's one that is one good thing not to get onto Georgia too much, but we because we were kind of a late bloomer, we do still have s- some good room to grow here. So we're yeah. en- we're enjoying that adventure for sure. It's kind of a golden era for uh, you know for the for anybody who really loves good beer. Yeah, you know, you, there's there's good beer not far from you. You know. Well, definitely. Now, while we were uh, in your mission statement, uh, you're talking about making balanced, nuanced, and sessionable beers, and uh, we're drinking one right now, actually, at your Colch uh, that you guys were kind enough to uh, to send to us, and uh, it's really kind of like I said, it's a nice, easy drinking, sessionable beer. And you know, it's funny because in this day and age, sometimes that's overlooked. You know, you kind of feel like a lot of brewers want to see how hoppy they, you know, how many IBUs you can throw in there, you know, what kind of barrel age you can throw in there, what kind of sours you can. can. But it seems like you guys just uh, focus on again. The good drinking sessionable beers is that something that you've really kind of kind of worked with? Yeah, that's been a driving kind of a, I don't know focus of mine since I started and since before I started since I was home brewing and and then after I uh, kind of took the the leap to decide to open a brewery and then I went on a couple of really inspirational trips to England where I really fell in love with english bitters english miles and just you know they're they're to me they're kind of the masters of coaxing a ton of flavor out of a really small package and having a beer that's four four point two sometimes even under four a mild ale it might be like three eight and still have a taste really 
delicious and full of flavor. Like you don't feel like you're drinking something that's that low, but you can also drink three or four or five of them. And in, in the pub culture, they're really sort of, it would be hard to have that kind of pub culture and have everybody guzzling 7% IPAs, you know? So it just, I, I discovered that early on, you know, in my own path and then I found it really attractive. And I, I like that the ingredients that go into those beers and, and how you kind of do a lot with a little to get a lot of flavor. And, you know, while our Kolsch is a little bit of a, you know, a side, you know, departure from the, the English influence being German, uh, it's still, it's still a kindred beer because it still yeah. represents oh, yeah. that idea Absolutely. of like under 5%, really a lot of balance, really able to taste the malt and the hops. I like that conversation that malt and hops and yeast have together. And when one doesn't dominate the other, it's, it's kind of a nice, it just to me, that's like the, the, the classic beer, you know, expression of beer. And then from there, you, you know, we're as susceptible as everybody else in this country to experimenting and pushing boundaries and seeing what we can do because it's just kind of the American way of, of the of brewing culture, I think. So we have, you know, the other beer that I sent you is a 100 BU IPA. Um, so we're, you know, we do that too, but like those are, to us, those are kind of departures from, you know, the the, the original Magnolia aesthetic in brewing is, is to really focus on balance and kind of sessionability and it is overlooked, except in breweries. When you look at the end of a workday in almost any brewery, and what are what's everybody drinking yeah. is often a pretty light, refreshing pale ale or Kolsch. I mean, the Kolsch is the go-to beer in our two breweries after work. Yeah, it's yeah, funny. We've, so, yeah. Yeah, we've said that many times here when we talk with brewers or we're we're hanging out at at breweries with brewers. You'll see their Pilsner, their Kolsch, you know, an ESB or something like that. They're not sitting around hanging and just chatting and drinking their. 15% double IPA, stout, exactly. double IPA, you know. Right. So those are super fun to make, and they're yeah. really fun to like taste, but they're not necessarily beers you want to drink two or three of. Yeah. Now, uh, Dave, you mentioned that uh, you mentioned that you know your beers are sessionable in that, and I'm assuming that in in the Bay Area, receptive to that. Mitch Steele recently, another California brewer that's actually coming out here to Atlanta to open a brewery, but he said in an article recently. If you don't brew an IPA in San Diego, you're not going to be successful. That you just can't go there without that. But it sounds like uh, up in your area, that's not the case on the other end of the state. Uh, you know, it's there's he's he's certainly right. I you know, in a lot of ways, it's 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 not mutually exclusive though. It's like you you have to brew an IPA. I think uh, or right. not everybody does, but most people do. I mean, some some people are super committed to, you know, going down, you know, like wild and sour route and things like that. But yeah, we, we've talked to Rare Barrel before, you know, mm-hmm. up, up in your neck of the woods, too. It's, yeah, yeah, they've got all the sour blending, too. So. Yeah, I mean, if you are really honed in on a really specific niche outside of, you know, where IPA wouldn't make sense, then that and that's, that's your story, then that makes a lot of sense. But, um, yeah, even for us, we're most known among beer lovers and, and kind of, the you know, people that pay attention to, to who's, who's up to what and who's, you know, who specializes in these different things. Like we're definitely known for our English style beer and our session beer, whether it's English or not, and our cast condition beer, most of which is really sessionable. Um, but, you know, the numbers in terms of sales, like our IPA is still our bestseller. Sure, sure. Well, cool. So, and that's it. So that's the part where what Mitch says makes total sense. Yeah, so, you, yeah. you got you to make the IPA to make money. It's got to be can, there. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Well, cool. We're talking with Dave McLean. He's the founder and brewmaster of Magnolia Brewing from San Francisco. We're going to take a quick break right now. You'll listen to the Drink This Beer, and we'll be back right after this. More Drink This Beer with Tim and Aaron coming up after this. Here at Drink This Beer, we love to bring you the stories behind the craft beer and brewers that you love. And we'd be grateful if you took the time out to check out our Patreon site. It's at patreon.com slash beerguys. 
If you choose to become one of our donors, we would really appreciate it. Plus, you get some awesome swag, including t-shirts, glasses, stickers, and some more stuff that's coming down the pike. Thanks for listening to Drink This Beer, part of the Beer Guys Radio Network. Tell a friend and head to patreon.com slash beerguys. Cheers. Welcome back to Drink This Beer with your hosts, Tim and Aaron. And welcome back to the Drink This Beer Craft Beer Podcast, where we talk to the brewers that you love around America, around the world. Everywhere. Making everything that you enjoy. Jupiter. There you go. And this week, have we talked to anyone in Mars or Jupiter yet? I'm working on that. Becky's getting some. uh, Yeah, exactly. All right. But this week, here and now, we're talking to Dave McLean. Dave is the founder and brewmaster of Magnolia Brewing out of San Francisco, California. And we just cracked open his uh, IPA. Proving Ground. IPA. This is is my kind of IPA right here. It's got a good good 100 IBUs. It's good. Now, yeah, Dave, I, like I have it. a question for okay. you. Aaron and I had a little disagreement on this earlier. When I say something to Aaron, we use chat a lot to talk. And when Aaron doesn't want to hear what I have to say, he just replies, okay. <laughs> so that's 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 it. But Sometimes we, I'm busy, but that's all right. That's but it. we were talking about Maris Otter, and uh, he mentioned that's an old classic malt. And and I saw that it's you know it's really introduced in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s, but there are even newer malts out. So... What's your opinion? You use a lot of Maris Otter. Is Maris Otter new school or old school malt? Uh, Maris Otter is pretty old school. I think it's as old school as it gets in terms of barley varieties go because it is, uh, what is it now, 52 years old. Um, yeah. I happened to be over in England in 2015, two years ago, and they were celebrating their 50th anniversary as a barley variety. And there were a lot of breweries around the country that were making special anniversary kind of commemorative beers for that. So. It's 52, and that's a long, that's a lot of years in, you know, agriculture and, and like, in different varietals and, and, and specifically in malt. You know, every few years, new varieties are put out, um, tested, and then released because they um, are, you know, more pest-resistant, resistant to, to modern, you know, the modern advance, like changes in, in different kinds of, of disease and pest um, things that, that would attack, you know, malt and, or barley in the field. Um, so, you know, farmers are always trying to make sure that they're getting seed stock that is going to give them the best chance of success with a good, you know, high-yielding crop and, and low low chance of losing the crop or damaging the crop and being able to, you know, get the best kind of barley out of it that a malting company would want to, you know, pay top dollar for. So in that environment, it's kind of amazing that Maris Otter has continued for 50-plus years because, you know, really every seven or eight years there's some, some newer varieties and or variants of varieties that, that come and, and become more popular among the growers. So it's it's partly because it brews so well. It's a really nice beer to brew with, I mean, nice malt to brew with. Um, you know, louder's really well. Um, the taste is great. It's just everything about it. It's usually really low protein. So everything about it just makes it something that brewers, especially in the U.K., uh, where it's from, have continued to to ask for. And, it, it you know, create there's a just an inherent demand there that means maltsters keep malting it and therefore growers keep growing it. And that's definitely an unusual for a barley variety to be around that long and still be so prized by so many people. See, just like I said, Aaron, old school malt. There. Okay, there so, you go. Yeah, that's no. it. With its problem <laughs> so solved. So you know, it's one I homebrew and, and I really enjoy Maris Otter. Use it quite a lot. Uh, we do that. Also, Golden Promise is another yeah, one that uh, that I enjoy. So. I'm actually yeah. uh, involved in a 
I'm a small partner in a, um, a new malting company that's going to open up over in Alameda across the bay from San Francisco, Admiral Malting Company. It's going to be the first post-prohibition malting company in California. And wow, cool. It comes out of my involvement and just comes out of my love for malt and appreciation for the fact that that's the foundation of beer. And, I've, you know, by using Maris Otter and Golden Promise and Vireman Pills and some of the other kind of premium malts as base malts for so long, like I, it's just... I just have this appreciation for it that makes me want to get involved in the the, the making of malt too. Yeah, you know, that's something that's something we're not seeing a lot of yet is the craft malsters. Yeah, it's always or hops. Small, it's the, you know, the, we see yeah. hops coming out. A lot of right. yeast houses have opened up. We've seen, you know, we've got uh, the yeast bay, East Coast yeah. Yeast Labs, all of these. But malt is still lagging behind there, I guess. The the malting yeah. houses, so. Well, it's a little it feels sometimes like salmon swimming upstream because everybody's so focused on hops these days that there is a little bit of a burgeoning craft malt scene. Uh, it's just, you know, it's not as highly publicized at this point, but there's a craft maltsters guild. Uh, has about 30 to 35 members right now, I think. Um, a lot, so therefore a lot of states now have really small craft malting companies. Um, you know, there's a couple that have been doing it a little longer than everybody else. There's Valley Malt in Massachusetts and uh, Blue Ox in Maine and, Riverbend in North Carolina. So there's some on the East Coast that are, you know, I don't know what the outputs of those different malting companies are, but they're definitely, you know, local brewers in those areas are primarily the ones that would be using the, that local malt. And that's awesome because that means there's a, a local supply chain for malt and in some cases hops now too. So you, you can, we're starting to turn a corner where you could truly craft a local beer with local ingredients in a lot of places. So what are you going to do differently at, you know, a craft malting facility as opposed to you know the malting facilities that are already out there i mean what is what is the advantage of going to what what you're starting versus the big guys i'm just curious because it it's completely new to me this whole crafted malt type of thing well i mean i think there's at least two things that make it kind of special for in you know at least the way we look at it one is that you know it is a more of a direct connection to 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 the local agriculture region you know like california is a great california grows a lot of food for a lot of yeah. the country and it's a great agricultural state but and it used to make a lot of malt it used to make a lot of it used to grow a lot of barley and turn it into malt and even export it to beer uh, producing countries in europe uh, up until the 60s and now you know it's been a long time since that's happened and so there's an opportunity here to work with local farmers uh in the state of california and in some cases, we'll be growing organic barley. In other cases, no-till barley, which is a type of you know treatment where you don't till the the soil. It's a little little bit better for the environment in that way, even if it's not organic. And so we're working with growers to to do some pretty cool things. And they're growers who we know and are within you know less than a half a day's drive from San Francisco or Alameda. And um, you know that means we have a real strong link to the people. You know, ties it all the way ties the beer making process all the way back to the you know, where it should be brought back to, which is the people that actually grow the ingredients. And then, you know, the malt house is kind of the intermediate step. We're the ones that take the raw barley and make it usable in a brewery by, you know, germinating it and converting the starches into uh, simpler sugars and smaller starch molecules. So that's that's kind of the, you know, the maltster is the middleman. And, and Oh, go ahead. No, it seems to me kind of like, Brian, your question about, you know, why do this. We talk here in Georgia, and Dave, you may not know this, we just got the right for our breweries to sell beer on site. Shocking. So as of September 1st, <laughs> we'll be able to sell beer on site. And like they talked about small batch, Brian, where you can you do something that may not be worth sending to a distributor to go out to all these stores. I imagine it's the same thing, right, Dave, with the malt you may have a small batch of something special that you can't send up to a big commercial malt house to get this done, you know? 
Yeah, and that's that was that's kind of the other cool thing of the two things. One is just local working with local growers, and the other thing is smaller batches means a little more. You know, we're a little more nimble. We can customize. You know, somebody might want a you know little you know more higher kiln uh, color and flavor pickup in their malt, and we have the ability to to do that in a in a really small scale way and work with our local brewing community. So it's there's that too. Like like you say, that opportunity for small batch malt, just like small batch beer and probably small batch malt becomes small batch beer. Yeah, um, true. So it just ties it all together in a nice package that I, you know, in 20 years of doing this, these kinds of opportunities haven't existed until really recently for a lot of brewers. Yeah, and of course you mentioned, of course, that whole local uh, field, the local, the quote-unquote farm-to-table movement, something that was started in the San Francisco area with the Alice Water at Chez Panis. Uh, is that something that uh, really kind of inspired you back in 1997 when you opened up your quote-unquote gastropub? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that was a Magnolia being the way it is and what, how it started is definitely a product of its environment and the, the whole San Francisco Bay Area food movement that I just kind of found myself in. Um, you know, it just became pretty clear that there was something bigger going on than just the beer part that I was so in love with. But, like, you know, it was, there was context there that put beer in the context of being, you know, part of a larger, a larger good food movement that mm-hmm. was really had taken root for already a couple decades, even by then. And that was, that was the the like direction I needed to figure out what you know what does Magnolia want to be what do we what do I want it to be as a as a brewery and restaurant and brew pub and and that gastro pub idea was really driven by that that idea that you you know beer is food and 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 all the value statements you make and philosophical statements you make about how you source beer ingredients and how you know the labor of love that it is and the hands on way of beer making in small batches all those things are are just as true in the food world. If you're making those kind of statements, they're kind of bigger than just brewing. You're basically kind of saying, this is how I think about, you know, what we eat and drink. And then it seems so logical, you know, in the context of where we're, where we are here to, to extend that and make it consistent across everything we did. So like, of course we would approach the kitchen the same way that we approach the brewery. Like how, you know, it would almost be illogical to, to have one be different from the other. It's like, if you're going to say all that stuff about how you approach beer making, you almost have to say that about how you approach the, food you cook too. Yeah, it's funny. It's, you know, back in the day and I went to college in 1995 in, in Ithaca, New York, and I worked at a brew pub there and we were basically pizza and nachos and that was our food. But, you know, we've kind of come full circle now from- Were uh, they craft nachos? They were craft. I made them. They had the <laughs> okay, best cheese good. ever. No, yes. um, but it's almost like a natural progression because nowadays you've got uh, gastropubs winning Michelin stars. So I know I can't think of the name of it off the top of my head, but there's a brew pub in Chicago that got a Michelin star. Yeah, it, just last year. It's yeah. amazing that uh, it's kind of come full circle now, where uh, you know you're gets fine food, fine dining, and fine beer. Yeah, and it just makes sense. Like if, like all those things. You, I think it, a while ago the the first place to showcase like you know farm to table and where does this stuff come from was really just the high end places, which meant means that for most of us, like you only get to, you, at that time you only got to experience that kind of food once or twice a year on a birthday or anniversary, some kind of special occasion that dragged you out to a, you know, a fine dining place. And that seems wrong. Cause like, that's, those are like, why, why you should be able to eat that kind of food every day, Sure, you know, and you, you should know where your food came from. And it shouldn't just be once a year that you celebrate something and have some that have food that has a, you know, a sort of known pedigree to it. You should just, you know, have it, it should just be part of just like having a local brewery in your neighborhood. You know, you should also, be able to have locally sourced food and, and quality food that came from potentially people you might know and interact with in your community. So speaking of food and that, you did uh, quite quite a big task, the smokestack. 
So you took a brewery, bar, and a restaurant and put them all in an old building in industrial area San Francisco, correct? That's right. Yeah. That's a quite a, quite a, quite a uh, busy task, and it's interesting because, you know, of course, uh, the dock area in San Francisco uh, is one of those places where it's kind of up and coming. You've got the farmer's market, of course, it's right down there. Um, but it seems like it was quite a challenge. Uh, I looked at your video that you had uh, when you are making it to put all of that in an old building and make it work. Yeah, well, where, where we are is uh, the Dog Patch neighborhood is a little bit south of, you know, AT&T Park, and, and that's a little bit south of, like, the Ferry Building, and that's okay. kind of, like, kind of ground zero of all the, you know, the, the action on the on the waterfront. So this is this is still it's changing even as we speak, but it was San Francisco's industrial waterfront. It was, like, shipbuilding and uh, steel mill and, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of the, you know, industrial roots of San Francisco passed through our, our little neighborhood. And um, and so it was, you know, it's very different kind of place, very very rustic, and just you know a lot of a lot of warehouse buildings. Now there's a lot of new residential being built, and it's kind of a neighborhoods growing up around this this old neighborhood or within the old neighborhood. But it was yeah, it was just a big project. Um, it was challenging because it was you know trying to do a lot combined and on top of each other. You know, so there's a lot of different kinds of permitting issues and just just the whole thing was it was just a but it was a labor of love, and and the out, you know what we ended up with was was pretty spectacular. I mean, I think we all feel pretty lucky going to work there every day because it's a it turned into a pretty special place, and the community supports it, and and so it you know it it was hard, but you know I would say it was worth it. Yeah, and of course uh, you serve what's called a San Francisco barbecue, and of course we're here in the South. I'm interested to know exactly what San Francisco That's barbecue is. That's not a is. thing, Dave. I think you're making up stuff there. San Francisco <laughs> I'm barbecue. Making up stuff. You're absolutely right. <laughs> there you go. Smoked guacamole. Uh, yeah. Well, no, we don't go there. But yeah, smoked avocado toast, right? There you go. Right. That's right. There you go. Avocado <laughs> toast. Maybe that's the new thing. That's um, it. No, I mean, I, I think you know, we just wanted to be, you know, both kind of honest about our perspective and where we're coming from, and also just you know kind of honor you know that the, the whole san francisco contribution to food culture and that just to me that means just making making really great barbecue that 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 we like that tastes great by our standards and you know it's a little bit just like the craft beer movement is a fusion of a lot of different brewing styles that comes came from a lot of different brewing cultures and countries um you know we i'm not from texas or memphis or georgia or anywhere like that i don't have like three generations or five generations of smoking meat a certain way in my blood. Um, I just happen to really love it. And just like I also don't have five generations of brewing in my blood, and I happen to really like, you know, making a German Kolsch and a bunch of British beers and an American IPA. And so that's, I think, what we're getting at with the idea of San Francisco barbecue. As long, you know, people have been smoking meat for generations and generations, for almost as long as humans have been around and fire, and we discovered fire, right? And, yeah, that's right. And, and so it's not just... Yeah, every everybody has a lot of amazing and, and really awesome pride of the place where like wherever they're from where there's great barbecue and, and it's totally understandable, but like I just kinda took a sort of kind of thirty thousand foot view of all that and said, you know, like I love the dry rub of Texas brisket and I like this, you know, with that I like the vinegar sauce and the, you know, kind of Caroline influenced pork that we do and it's really just being really hopefully being good at what we do. And being able to, you know, know how to smoke meat, and and then if it jumps around a little bit from dish to dish and has a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and in terms of its influence, then that's 
that's kind of San Francisco barbecue. And to me, that's actually a lot like craft beer. You know, yeah, same sure. idea. Let's face it. Dave just did what most men want to do. He's got beer, fire, meat. <laughs> yeah. And that's what he does. That's what he does every with that. day. Yeah, absolutely. Not a bad life, Dave. Not a bad life, man. So I can't disagree. I do like it. Right. Excellent. Well, Dave McLean, thanks. Uh, congratulations again for 20 years in brewing. And thanks for joining us on Drink This Beer. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Dave, if people want to find out what's going on next with Magnolia, what's the best place to do that? Well, magnoliabrewing.com is our, our website. And, um, you know, our, our we've got two Facebook pages, one for Magnolia Pub and one for SF Smokestack, it's called. Uh, and those those are where things that are happening at the at the restaurants and brew pubs tend to show up. Um, and we're, you know, we're all over other social media as well, Magnolia Beer, Magnolia Pub, SF Smokestack, those are our handles everywhere. And, um, yeah, we do a lot of events, a lot of, we have a lot of kind of, Magnolia Pub's a lot of food-focused specials. We do, like, a traditional English pub Sunday joint every Sunday night. It's, called, it's like a, the Sunday roast is a big thing in pubs in England, and we kind of riff on that. And Yeah, uh, any of those places would, would give you a sense of what things we have going on. Awesome. I'm, I'm coming to your place to have a Hangtown Fry. That's all I'm saying. That looks right. fantastic. Awesome. <laughs> Excellent. Cheers, Dave. Thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. And thanks for listening to Drink This Beer. Remember, you can find us on social media. Just look <laughs> yeah. for Drink This Beer on Facebook. Yeah. Quit beatboxing on me, guys. Yeah. You're killing me. Yeah. That's right. All right. <laughs> Check out Beer Guys Radio on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Drink This Beer. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. More beer stories? Head to BeerGuysRadio.com. Follow the Beer Guys on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Want more craft beer news? Listen to the Beer Guys Radio Show, available every Saturday morning. Drink this beer, produced and developed by Tim Dennis and Aaron Williams, part of the Beer Guys Media Radio Network, BeerGuysRadio.com.